So it's nice to come here. I'm happy to be here and meet you all of you. And it feels like, um, you know, potentially a pyramid scheme for joy. <laughs> in that, in that, you know, you represent so many different communities around the country, and we come here together, and then, then somehow the benefits of being here will go out and spread out across the lands in all kinds of ways. And to be able to come and be part of that in a small way is very nice for me. Um, I just last week that I kind of thought about what I would speak about here, and so I checked with Matthew and gave him the general ideas, but I had never considered a title. So I apologize for Matthew. Of course, if you come to give a keynote speech, you know, you uh, should normally a person occur to people to be responsible for the title. But it, I didn't think about that until now. <laughs> then, then I see there's one. So uh, maybe uh, at the end of the talk we can come up with a see if it's appropriate, and see if maybe there's a better one in some ways. So um, my understanding is that uh, part of what you've been looking at this uh, gathering is the interface or the connection or the overlap between um, secular mindfulness and Buddhist mindfulness. And it's certainly possible to, and people have done this, to compare how mindfulness itself, sati, is taught in the secular world and, um, and how it's taught in the Buddhist world. And they both have very rich and valuable approaches to sati, to mindfulness, that are well worth studying on their own and well worth studying together and influencing each other. And I have tremendous respect for the secular mindfulness world and how it's developing and the research and the thinking and the sophistication there that goes into, you know, very, very intelligent people kind of exploring it, developing it looking at the issues in the ways that sometimes us Buddhist teachers haven't really addressed ourselves. So I think it's a wonderful time to be in, to feel this interaction. Then occasionally there's some tension between the two. Um, and uh, as, as some Buddhists in particular may, maybe are a little bit defensive, maybe feel a little bit threatened that, that this whole, <clears throat> you know, what was used to be the domain of Buddhism, domain of Vipassana Buddhism, uh, for the most part, is now taught so broadly uh, by people. It's kind of left the, you know, it's left, and it's off, you know, it's like, you know, we lost it. And now it's off galloping off and developing into something else and leaving the Buddhists in the dust. Uh, So they're concerned about that, maybe, or it's not really the Dharma, and... uh, and so what happens to the Dharma? So for me, I'm not really worried. I don't feel threatened by secular mindfulness. I think it's a great thing in itself. And uh, I wish it all the luck and all the fortune and success and growing and developing. I hope it becomes even more thriving. And part of the orientation I have for that comes from a teaching I got from my first Zen teacher, uh, who was kind of a visionary uh, and uh, for Buddhism as was getting established here in America. And uh, uh, he um, uh, uh, kind of hoped for or anticipated a day where what was going to uh, develop in the United States is a Buddhist culture uh, where people were involved very broadly in, in Buddhism in a lot of, lot of different ways. In the way that you'd go to Thailand and there's a Buddhist culture and it touches into school systems, touches into 
people's, uh, all the different uh, stages of a people's lives. There's educational institutions for Buddhism. There's um, ceremonies. There's holidays. You know, so it's kind of a wide range of things which people who are really dedicated towards liberation and awakening would say these are not really that important. What's important is to do the intensive practice and you know go for the heart of the matter, go for liberation. This wider Buddhist culture. And what he said was as this wider Buddha, Buddhist culture gets formed, it creates the conditions that makes it easier for a few people within that culture to discover the practice and, and, uh, and have the opportunities to go and become the next Buddhas, become the next great teachers or something. Um, it's kind of like, um, uh, because you need a culture, like it takes a village, they say, to raise a child. It takes a culture, it takes a whole sangha to really create uh, you know, a good number of people who are really mature and developed in the practice, the next Buddhas. And so as the, as the secular mindfulness uh, scene develops, it's a cl- very closely related to what we're teaching in Buddhism. And it's part of that creating a wider society where what Buddhism has to teach is becomes more fertile ground for it. More people are receptive and open and understanding of it. And so in some ways, the secular mindfulness is doing uh, Buddhism in, uh, a huge favor in uh, kind of, you know, you know, creating a seedbed or for all this to grow and develop. So, I think it's great. So, but there is a possible then to contrast uh, mindfulness, secular mindfulness, and Buddhism. Certainly, Buddhist mindfulness, and very technically, very specifically, but also more generally, what secular mindfulness is in its wider presentation, and what Buddhism is as a religion, as a wider thing. And, uh, and people make those comparisons. And sometimes when I hear these comparisons, um, they're treating Buddhism as a singular thing. As, you know, they lump all of Buddhism together. They see it all this, Buddhism is, they say, and secular mindfulness is, and then they make the comparison. And uh, so it might be interesting to look a little bit at what we're comparing when we look at the Buddhist side. And what I'd like to uh, suggest to you is that uh, Buddhism is not a singular religion, it's not a singular phenomena, and it doesn't really make sense to say Buddhism in the abstract as if it's one singular thing. And to do that is, you know, you're not really doing a fair comparison because what you're comparing to secular mindfulness, which is a little bit more specific what it is, but it has certain boundaries and clarity of what it is. Um, if you have a, this is what Buddhism is, it's a figment of the imagination. If you hold it all together as one big lump sum Buddhism, so I was, um, there's a book published about now, maybe 50 years ago, a college textbook on Buddhism written by one of the great scholars, professors of uh, Buddhism in America named Richard Robinson. And uh, it was called The Buddhist Religion. Maybe some of you have read it. Back in the 60s, it was a relatively small little book. Very, it's well, still worth reading. It's a very nice book, Introduction to Buddhism, Survey but kind of meant to his college textbook. And as, there is, as is the case for college textbooks, they, uh, the companies make money by keep doing new editions. And then, then the students have to buy the new edition, you know. So there's now, I think there've been six editions. And uh, at some point, Tanisaru Bhikkhu uh, became the editor or the writer for the updated editions. And uh, so much so that the sixth edition, which is quite big, uh, is, um, basically all of his writing. 
before he kind of went in there and kind of tweaked it and, you know, developed it. But then now the latest version, I think, is basically him. And it's very scholarly. And I think it's almost, uh, I think, too difficult to read for most undergraduates. It's like a graduate level introduction to Buddhism, that book. He did a very good job overall. And it's, I think it's well worth reading if you have a mind for that kind of study. But he did a very interesting thing, interesting thing with the title of the book. It used to be called the, uh, the Buddhist Religion. The sixth edition is called The Buddhist Religions. And that's a pretty provocative idea. Because, you know, even though there might be many kinds of Buddhism, we kind of see it as Buddhism as a singular religion. But here he says, the Buddhist religions. And that's, you know, what does that mean to separate them out that way? I mean, we're not the same religion as the Theravadans, are not the same religion as the Tibetans, as the Zen, it's different religions. Is that how he sees it? So it's a, I just want to offer that as a provocative kind of this idea of not lumping but separating. And then I had a conversation with Analyo Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu Analyo, some years ago, and we were talking about different uh, states of realization, different states of mind that come in practice. And, uh, and as sometimes it does in this, these circles, it's some of us uh, wanting to make some comparisons with something like Dzogchen and some of the states of mind that are championed in Tibetan Buddhism. So I asked him some of those questions. And his answer, his response to me was kind of also very telling. He first said, oh, he loves this Dzogchen and the teaching. He thinks it's really great. He was like delighted by it, you know. He felt just like he was celebrating it. It was great. So, oh, great. He knows something about it. He likes it. So now it'll be interesting to compare it to Theravadan Buddhism and Vipassana and those states, what happens there. And, um, and he declined because he said, to compare them, contrast them, is like comparing apples and oranges. It's a different system, it's a different worldview, it's a different way of organizing human experience that has its own rationality, its own system, its own context. And Theravada Buddhism has its own. And he was actually disinclined to try to mix and match. Even though it can seem like we're talking about states of consciousness. It's, they should be all the same for human beings. Their states of consciousness are universal for all human beings, and we're talking about the same thing. It's kind of interesting. Is that, that's kind of the assumption people have, but is that really true? We would like it to be true. But how much are even the states of consciousnesses that we experience, are they conditioned by certain cultural factors, worldviews, ideas we have? And um, some of you might know that one of the very interesting movements in psychology these days is that um, people who've done psychological studies are beginning to realize that a huge majority of the studies about into human nature and psychology and how human being minds are, it turns out that um, uh, they chose a very weird, and this is the, scho- the scholars who use the word weird, it's an acronym, <laughs> weird people to generalize about how human beings are. And, uh, and so uh, they chose, uh, mostly, a lot of them have to do with white Americans and white male Americans. <laughs> and why they're, why they're weird, in this scholarly paper, um, is uh, white, industrialized, educated, rich 
democratic. I think that's what that word stands for. And so when they started taking the same experiments that they did in, um, you know, psychological experiments they did on all these white people, and started going around cultures and societies all over the world, they found something very interesting. They found that different cultures, different societies, different people around the world um, had different results for these studies. They thought this is what, you know, different results. So what they got from these weird people uh, was not universal in the way they thought. <clears throat> it was you know, not universal. And, um, and you got a bell curve of results, which is nice, you know, over the world, it's a wide range of ways. But the weird people, turns out that they were at the extreme end of one of the bell curves. They weren't even in the middle or close to the middle. So that's why they said they're weird. Uh, you know, so the people who wrote it, uh, they belong to that category of people. So they felt that it was okay for them to coin that term. And um, so if you, if you, hopefully you're with me, and I'll get to the Buddhism part. But <laughs> so um, the, um, the, 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 what broke open this whole field of study, uh, there was a couple of different experiments, but one of the most simplest one to describe was um, uh, you probably know this optical illusion kind of thing where you have two parallel lines that are the same length. But the end of one, you put feathers sticking out and a V going out. And the other one, you, you have uh, arrow lines, so the, the, the lines Vs go inwards. Then you ask people, which of these is the short? And you know, how, which, are they the same length? Which is long? Which is short? And uh, for these weird people, it's inevitably, the majority, it's the ones with the feathered out are the longer ones. But actually, they're the same. They went to the Amazon basin, where people have lived outdoors for much of their life, and they looked at those lines and say, they're the same length. So when they studied the weird people, they thought this was normal for human beings, the optical kind of process, to see these being the same length, uh, you know, different lengths. But now they think, no, it's because of the, of this, uh, the, uh, the life people live in the West. People live in boxes where there's perspectives of these lines. And, though, and living in boxes in rooms with these straight perpendicular lines the way they are, that predisposes us to see these things in different ways. And so it predisposes us to see them not to being the same length, but one to be longer than the other. So this is a, you know, kind of a, maybe a, unusual way of pointing out that, that when uh, you know, Analia was talking about he, he was disinclined, now I'm not speaking for him anymore, but he was interpreting him maybe, when he was disinclined to compare states of consciousness in Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada, he was being very respectful of the fact that even experiences like states of consciousness are not universal. But they, the way we experience them and know them have something to do with the cultural context or the societal context in which we're in, the framework and the understanding that we have that helps to create that and shape that. Some people, that's, some people I'm sure, some of you will quite want to protest because we want something that's universal. We want something that's true and full and, you know, something. We want it to be, you know, to know that we're in touch with the truth. 
I think we can be in touch with the truth. The fact that it's culturally conditioned doesn't mean it's less true or less important. It just means that we have to negotiate and find it, the truth, through that and with that in some way. So the Buddhist religions, apples and oranges, when we go to look at Buddhism, what do we find? And we find that over the history of Buddhism and over Buddhism in different cultures and societies today, there are a range of different kinds of Buddhism. And it's, I think it's fair enough to make a very general distinction of a spectrum between, on one hand, Buddhism which is quite religious and Buddhism that gets more secular. And then there's a range of where people fit in that, in that flow. It's a little bit arbitrary how we define these terms, so we don't want to take them as being absolute, but uh, for some people, the more religious kinds of Buddhism would be much more based on faith, more f- uh, based on maybe rituals, more based on the supernatural world of rebirth and uh, uh, supernatural beings. In some countries, the idea of ghosts becomes an important part of the scene that they take, they're coming into taking into account in the religiosity. The more religious forms of Buddhism uh, tend to be much more oriented, uh, very much oriented towards the monastics. And the monastic orders are kind of the clergy that mediate the relationship between the laity and what's sacred and special. And uh, in fact, as many of us know, that sometimes the more traditional relationship between the laity and Buddhism is they, they make donations to the monks, they worship, and then somehow they uh, acquire merit through all that. And the monastics are kind of the mediators and the medium through which you get the merit and develop. So perhaps that's uh, uh, you know, a little bit more the traditional religious side of it. The secular, secular I want to use the word secularized because I think there's a secularizing movement. And that is uh, a movement which is... Um, uh, not based so much on the supernatural, not based on rebirth and multiple lives, emphasis on that, uh, not based so much on, on faith where we're believing in something that we can't know, but you know something part of the supernatural, invisible world, but the emphasis on personal, direct experience for oneself, unmediated by the clergy, by the monastics, uh, where there is uh, less emphasis on the supernatural world, or maybe no emphasis on it, Uh, And the idea of rebirth recedes from importance because it all has to do with here and now. In the modern era, it tends to be scientific thinking comes into play and people are wanting something that's more rational, more scientific, more empirical, and things which are more, don't fit into that uh, framework uh, tend to be not uh, appreciated so much or not, doesn't, doesn't have a place so much. And I think to some degree, and it's a question of what degree, uh, the American Vipassana movement has been uh, on that range from religious Buddhism and secularized Buddhism. It's on the range, it moves towards the secularized side. And that was done quite explicitly by people like Sharon and Jack and Joseph when they started IMS. They wanted to offer the Dharma, to offer the practice of mindfulness, in a way that was accessible to anybody and everyone, where they, especially to, including people who'd be turned off if there was too much religious elements in, in Buddhism. So they had debates in the early years at IMS of how many Buddha statues to have. Because that was, you know, some people don't like to have graven images, and so it's a little bit troublesome. And so 
They may not have that. And then on, on the chanting and, you know, how much to have. And it was, so it was a lay movement. They did away with a lot of the rituals, most of them, you could say. Uh, they, uh, some of the religious elements then went away. Uh, even though people like Jack and Joseph believe in rebirth, uh, I think it's rare that it comes into their public discourse. I mean, uh, you know, I studied with Joseph for quite some time, listened to a lot of his Dharma talks, and I can't remember that was ever an emphasis of his. I've heard that emphasis in private. And so there was a kind of care to keep certain kind of beliefs, private beliefs, more private, but the public presentation to present something that was accessible to a wide range of people. Um, it tends to be relatively rational, the presentation of the Dharma and the Vipassana scene. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, and so it's not so strange that the scientific form of mindfulness, secular mindfulness, kind of has, has, has jumped off or come out of IMS. Joseph, uh, I mean, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, practicing at IMS. And so we have this, we're kind of in a secularized direction. Now within the Vipassana world itself, we have people and individual practitioners and teachers who themselves represent a range, you know, more religious, more secular, you know, where they actually they fit. But, you know, it's kind of a fluid line where people are. But it, I think it's kind of more in a in secularized direction, this Vipassana world. And some people complain about the Vipassana world being too Americanized, it's left Buddhism out, there's no Buddhism in it, uh, it's not, there's no religiosity, and... Um, you know, it's, there's, there's complaints about Vipassana, just like there's complaints about secular mindfulness, and just like everyone gets complained about. <laughs> if, you, if you don't want to have anybody complain about your Buddhism, don't be a Buddhist. <laughs> so it's just kind of part of the territory. Uh, that's, you know, you're not quite right in some way. But, um, but we're kind of, in, the, in my view, it's kind of, we're kind of more in the secularized direction of how things are. And... Um, and so, is it an anomaly? Is it something that's really weird? After all, it is kind of this Western, industrialized, educated, rich, democratically oriented people who were the founders of it and helped form it in the beginning. So, is that really kind of, does it represent kind of, you know, something really unusual in Buddhism? We're like at the far end of the bell curve. What is it? You know, and maybe it's not really Buddhism. So if you look at Buddhism in Asia, both currently and down through the last 150 years, and even before that into the ancient times, what you see is that uh, that range from religious Buddhism to more secularized Buddhism has existed uh, uh, before in Buddhism. It's not unique in the first time here in the modern West. And that there's, uh, when certain cultural forces and conditions come together, this is one of the directions that Buddhism tends to go in. And then the conditions change, and that's, uh, things move back to more religious forms of Buddhism. And if you go to a place like, uh, like Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, there's a range of Buddhisms there. And maybe it's all under the same sect of Buddhism there, like in Thailand there's two major sects and other sects. But you find within that teachers who also fit into that range between more religious and more secular. And to some degree, the teachers that some of us practiced with in Asia were the ones who were already in that secularized direction on the range. They probably never would use that language, and maybe that's not the best word. You can maybe you'll think of better words for this range that I'm offering here. But um, 
uh, when I practiced with Upandita in Burma, uh, I, I don't think I ever heard any talk, really talk about rebirth, that there was any importance for him, any talk about emphasizing the monastic order. He was a monk, but he was, when I was, worked, uh, I was with him for nine months, and he was teaching, uh, as far as I could see, he was teaching lay people. And he was empowering lay people to be teachers. He was, um, when I, uh, there was a little spirit house and, uh, for the knots across the way from his house. And some Burmese lay people were worshiping there one day. And I went into him and said, what's going on over there? And he said very sternly, he said, uh, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Like he just wanted to dismiss it. Like he was like, like he didn't see it. And, um, and so I don't know what his relationship was to that supernatural world the Burmese believe, but I didn't see him involved with any kind of supernatural world. Uh, and it's, you know, it seemed like it was a fairly rational presentation, a rational presentation from the suttas. And um, you know, it seemed like he was already, and the need for chanting, the need for ritual, uh, he wasn't interested in that at all, as far as I could tell. And when I left Burma, he told me that I could be a teacher but he didn't say that, you know, and remember, do you know, you have to remember these chants and, you know, bow to the Buddha 32 times every day and, you know, bring this religious side of Buddhism. He just wanted me to bring the practice. That's what he wanted to do. That's where his faith was in. Uh, when I looked at the writings of his teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, a fairly rational, also he's moving that direction, but he has lots of stories of the supernatural that he disperses with, uh, with his teaching. And so maybe, you know, there's, there's a progression. And Upanita represent, seems to represent something, a certain kind of way. I spent time with Yusilananda, another student of, of Mahasi Sayadaw, also very rational. He was educated in, in uh, English-speaking schools in Burma. Um, uh, seemed like a very rational man. He seemed fairly secular in his approach to Buddhism and the secularized in that movement. That's where I put him in the extreme, in the range. So it wasn't unique to the Westerners. It wasn't like the Westerners invented. We were kind of handed a kind of Buddhism that already was certain level of, of uh, religiosity was taken out of it, not there presented. Um, and so, uh, but this is not unique to certain teachers in Burma. Uh, and not unique to even Theravadan Buddhism in the modern era. This became very important in parts of uh, Chinese Buddhism. And in the uh, turn of the 19th, 20th century, uh, the influence of science, of colonialism, of many different forces came into play. And there was a very strong secularizing movement in Chinese Buddhism. And the language they that what it's, it's been called uh, is humanistic Buddhism. And, uh, and there's even a magazine called, I think it's called Humanistic Buddhism coming out of Hong Kong. And uh, the literal Chinese that's translated into English as Humanistic Buddhism is called um, Human Realm Buddhism or Buddhism for uh, Human Beings. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so some of the characteristics of this form of Buddhism is that uh, it's no longer so strictly monastically dependent. There's focus on the laity and lay teachers and developing the laity. Focus on this life, on uh, not, and not the supernatural world, 
not ghosts, which have been a tr- uh, traditionally a big part of Chinese culture and Chinese Buddhism, not the, the, the celestial heavens of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and this kind of supernatural world that's been a big part of Chinese Buddhism, and, um, and uh, into studying the suttas and the fairly rational discourse of an understanding of it, and also a tremendous emphasis on, this is why the humanistic Buddhism, on being of service, of uh, supporting and doing service work for the world around us and people around us. And some of the great humanitarian organizations that come out of Buddhism come out of this humanistic Buddhism of now in Taiwan. And, um, and the founder, or the kind of really first uh, teachers of this humanistic Buddhism was a Chinese monk named Tai Tzu. And Tai Tzu and his writings were very influential, influential for Thich Nhat Hanh. And Thich Nhat Hanh didn't call it humanistic Buddhism, he called it engaged Buddhism. And engaged Buddhism of Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, you know, he's somewhat, where he, where he fits in that range of secular to religious form Buddhism maybe, I think has changed over time. But I think that a lot of his books and a lot of his presentation have a kind of, a, a kind of lean in that secular direction. And um, this worldly direction. So uh, there, you know that, that you found that already in in, uh, in Chinese Buddhism, and uh, you find it in Sri Lankan Buddhism, and uh, it's maybe an unfortunate label that's given to Sri Lanka, parts of Sri Lankan Buddhism. Uh, it's given by scholars. The scholar who began this title was a Sri Lankan scholar himself. They called it Protestant Buddhism. And uh, it's the, it characterizes the movement in, in Sri Lanka to go back to the original texts, not have your Buddhism mediated by the monastics, but to have a personal relationship to, the, to Buddhism, to the texts, personal relationship to Buddhist practice, emphasis on the importance of laity and lay practice, emphasis on this world, not in the supernatural world, not on merit making, uh, not on how you're going to get reborn, but uh, focusing here and now. And one of the fruits of that kind of Protestant Buddhism in Sri Lanka, I think, I think it was a fruit of it, is the Sarvodaya movement, which is a Buddhist humanitarian organization that's really kind of helped uh, Sri Lankan Buddhism uh, offer a kind of a wonderful kind of Gandhian-like uh, humanitarian service organization. So even in Sri Lanka, you see that movement and, uh, and you find some Sri Lankans uh, uh, quite adamant about uh, doing away with the more religious forms of uh, Theravadan Buddhism that's their own Buddhism. One Buddhist monk gave me his business card and, uh, and it's, his uh, title was uh, Proto-Buddhist <laughs> because he didn't want to associate himself with Buddha Gosha and traditional Theravadan Buddhism but he was going back to the source, to the suttas themselves I studied with a Sri Lankan professor named David Kalapahana, and uh, and he also he would he would basically was cutting out the later developments of Theravadan Buddhism. He saw it as a kind of degeneration of what the Buddha had to teach, and he had no he had saw no no value in looking at Buddha Gosha, no value at some of the more supernatural and transcendent ideals that the more he would say the more religious side of Buddhism had formulated. And he also was, kind of, as, a, as a scholar, was kind of pointing towards very secularized, intellectual, kind of rational presentation of Buddhism. 
And uh, so that's kind of the modern era. <clears throat> but this also is replicated or happened also earlier centuries. And I don't know so much about all the diversity of what's happened in, 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 uh, in Buddhism down through the centuries. But I've read a scholarly paper talking about the same phenomena happened in, in, in China in the 1300s. And, uh, and there's a, a, one of the great anthropologists of the 20th century was a woman named Mary Douglas, who didn't study Buddhism so much, but she studied some of these kinds of movements in religions in the West. And she says, uh, she also pointed out the movement towards rationality and more kind of rational, kind of more secularized kinds of religion is not unique to the modern world, but rather it happens in societies when certain conditions come together. And it's happened periodically in the history of the West and, and the Near East when these conditions come together. So I'd like to offer you some of the conditions that contribute to this kind of religiosity. <clears throat> this is a, my guess, my interpretation. I don't have solid evidence behind me. And for anything I say today, <clears throat> but I'm trying to just offer you maybe a perspective that might open your eyes to study more widely and be a little bit more careful about the lumping and the generalizations that we tend to live in. <clears throat> so um, this more secularized form of Buddhism tends to arise when there's enough affluence so maybe existence of some, something like a middle class, that people are not living uh, hand to mouth. They're not having to work all the time, but they have time to study. They have time to practice. They have time to go hear teachings and to reflect and think about them and gather together in little groups of people to begin kind of exploring it and study groups and all that. You know, much, even to this day, much of, much of society, many people don't have that leisure, that ability. And so that doesn't often happen in the history of society to have that kind of capacity. But in the modern era, places like Sri Lanka and Burma and different places where this has happened, uh, it had to happen when there's enough people <coughs> who had this kind of leisure and ability <coughs> to, uh, to engage in Buddhism in a new way. Uh, <coughs> tends to happen when people are more educated. <coughs> and there's a variety of ways of becoming educated, but certainly in the modern era, we started seeing an education movement in many Asian countries. And as people became more educated, people would go to Europe to study in college, and they came back and they were interested in a very different uh, questioning, very different approach to religion, uh, to thinking about it and understanding it, than being spoon-fed some of the dogma or some of the supernatural beliefs or supernatural stories they're told. People started questioning them and wondering, is this really so and how do I understand it? I was told when I was in Burma, and in Burma and Thailand in mid-1980s, that uh, Buddha Dasa, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, had a very important role for, for Thai Buddhism. And that was that the educated middle class were really getting turned off by Thai Buddhism because it was so supernatural and so superstitious. And, um, and uh, they just couldn't you know, follow that kind of, that kind of teaching. And Buddha Dasa was, uh, wrote in a rational, intellectual way that offered a kind of secularized Buddhism that made sense to educated people. And, uh, and that really pulled them into Buddhism rather than leaving it. Uh, in places like Korea, uh, there's been a tremendous struggle in the 20th century, and especially the second half of it, uh, since World War II, between Christianity and Buddhism. 
and uh, and Buddhism has been persecuted in in uh, in Korea as as in the 1980s and the 1990s um, by the government, and uh, and part of the attraction of people to uh, Christianity has been uh, because of the more religious forms of Korean Buddhism that didn't quite work for people anymore as people got more educated and they saw that, that the Christianity was presented in more rational kind of modern ways that had made more sense to them. And now it seems like the pendulum is swinging in Korea. Going back more, people are going back to Buddhism a little bit more. So anyway, so uh, educated, have enough wealth, well-being, leisure to study this. And also the, um, a shift in power. Where for the power of what Buddhism is and determining what Buddhism is, defining what Buddhism is, uh, is taken out of the hands of the monastics. And lay people begin to see, we, we can do this. We can study it. We can have our own access to, uh, to, the, to, the, to the teachings. We can have our own access to meditation experience, to ex- experience of realization. We don't have to depend on these religious professionals to do it all. We can do it for ourselves. And then there's a change of authority. And that's a big shift. But you know, what does it take? What's the kind of confidence that allows that ability for people to kind of claim certain degree of authority for themselves, lay people especially, that is not there, you know, rather than granting it to the monastics? I think probably it's fair to say it's really true for me that there's a certain kind of awe and a certain kind of reverence to the monastic order and their authority, which you know is a little bit hard sometimes to negotiate because you know it's. Because of all the respect and awe for what that is, um, so shifting power centers, uh, where, you know where where it is. And I've heard some monastics a little bit complain here in America that it seems like you know the dominant Buddhist power in the Theravadan world, Vipassana world at least, uh, is these spirit rock kind of places, these lay people and these these lay teachers. And it's like, wait a minute, like we're supposed to be the ones. <laughs> Um, and you know, s- certainly some of the monastics don't have that attitude, but I- I've heard that a few times. <clears throat> so, um, um, so when certain conditions come together, and there's uh, and so then the idea of confidence, and one of the conditions that seems to uh, contribute is a degree of individualism. It's not unique. It's not the only thing, but uh, uh, there's a, in, within secularized Buddhism, there's a range even there between the, those secularized Buddhists that emphasize more the collective, the community, the sangha, and those who emphasize more the individual. It's probably fair to say that here in the modern Vipassana world, we t- if if uh, you know the, most of the members who participate probably are in the bell curve towards the extreme of individualism. It's probably fair. But there are people who fit the other side, and sometimes people people are hoping for more community, uh, and they're surprised they don't find it because sometimes the rhetoric is about community, but then they come and they find that they're trying to, and they don't like where is it? How do you connect? How do you do that? And there's certainly a strength to individualism, and it's not wrong this individualism, though it has its weaknesses and has its challenges, but it's just one way of organizing human life to get a, get get along. And then there's also those part, those people who focus more on community. So like the, some of the humanistic Buddhism of Taiwan, like the Fo Guangshan people, 
Um, uh, they really emphasize service, people, community, sangha in a huge way, probably coming out of the collectivist culture much more than here in America. Here in America, we're a splintered culture, and, uh, and this strong emphasis on the individual sometimes makes it hard for us to come together as a sangha or as a community and emphasize community values and hold each other together. And I think it's one of the challenges of the American Vipassana movement is the community aspect and, and how to do it and what to do it, if to do it, and, and, um, and how to live in a harmonious way together in a community. So um, the, um, so this movement towards a, you know, this, this fluidity between more religious Buddhism and secular Buddhism has been going on for a long time. And we just happen to be in a historical situation where we're now moving, to, we've been you know, in this kind of more extreme side of it where we're more, and more, more secularized. And some people have even adopted the title secular for their Buddhism. So uh, Stephen Batchelor talks about secular Buddhism. And we had a conference four years ago where all these people who were interested in what he had to do, secular Buddhism, came together to meet each other and talk about it. It was great. I was there. And almost everyone didn't like the word secular Buddhism, <laughs> even though they all came. It's what kind of brought them together. And, uh, and at that conference, I offered a different title, which maybe some of you read my article in the, in the Insight Journal. Uh, I suggested the title Supernatural Buddhism. No, not <laughs> Wow, <laughs> Freudian flip. <laughs> Nat- natural Buddhism. <laughs> and it was done you know, intentionally as a contrast to what's more supernatural Buddhism, the supernatural elements to it all, and um, you know, offering a different way. So there's all these different kind of w- titles or uh, names. So secular Buddhism, Natural Buddhism, engaged Buddhism, maybe humanistic Buddhism, Protestant Buddhism. There's um, uh, pragmatic Buddhism. I've seen. There's a little movement, or at least a website. Uh, I saw a website called uh, Existential Buddhism. I don't know. Maybe it's one of you, uh, but uh, I don't know. I didn't look and see what it is. But I kind of wondered whether it was more this this more secularized direction of what people are offering. And um, and. Um, you know, even here at Spirit Rock, I, you know, there's a movement towards a sec- secularizing, I think it's a stronger movement towards a secularized form of Buddhism than there is towards the religious Buddhism. And so, for example, I learned recently that Spirit Rock is going to offer, uh, I think, as far as I can tell, maybe M- Michelle can say a little different, but more of a, you know, there was a time when uh, some of the teachers here were trying to develop a whole way of training and, and, and certifying people as mindfulness teachers in a more secular kind of way. That was the interest because the mindfulness was being taken off, you know, and we should still have some ownership or some involvement or take some responsibility. And then now there, I think there are some, some centers around the country, mindfulness centers like Inside LA and I think Insight uh, Meditation in Washington, D.C. Um, I think both of them have a really important and valuable offering of NBSR. And I think an important part of their income comes from offering NBSR. So there's financial pressure or incentive to move in this kind of more, offer the more secular side of things. And if you, and if you start offering the secular, and that's the people's door in, or you tend to, the people then come in, are they going to be a little more inclined towards secular forms of Buddhism? And the secularizing influences are going to continue. So the last thing I want to say that maybe is the most controversial of it all, 
is that uh, I spent a lot of time studying the suttas and trying to understand what the Buddha had to teach. And, uh, you know, and, and my impression is if you go back to the earliest teachings, you get someone who was on the secularized side of Buddhism. You found a lot of the more religious aspects of Buddhism are absent in that earliest strata of what uh, Buddhism has to teach. I think it's kind of a natural Buddhism. So, for example, there's uh, uh, the focus on faith in the, some of these early texts. If it's hardly there at all, but if it is there, the word fa- English word faith, probably not a, a fair word to translate sada, but maybe confidence is a better word or tr- you know, for it. There's uh, n- uh, no emphasis on rebirth. When the emphasis on rebirth and multiple lives comes in into suttas, which it's peppered, all, it's assaulted all over there, you can't take it out of the suttas, it's there. But if you look carefully at how it's presented in there, it's not really at the heart of what the Buddha has to teach. It's more of a peripheral teaching. And it's more, you know, uh, it's, you know, you know he, he presents the Dharma and the essential insights and the essential realizations in and of themselves, independent of any reference to rebirth, multiple lives, uh, to the supernatural world, to heavens and all that. It's really focusing on a personal experience that you can have here and now that's, you know, not really about those things. As a byproduct, he does say, and if you do these things, have some of these realizations, then you'll only have a certain number of uh, rebirths. You know, but it's more presented as an afterthought than this is the purpose. The purpose is liberation, is freedom. And um, uh, it seems like the Buddha is pretty rational kind of guy. He lays it out pretty rationally what he's doing. You can sometimes you have to piece the pieces together, but uh, you know it's you know it works pretty well. So many I think it's to me I find it quite remarkable that uh, us in a very different culture, very different times, can go back in the suttas and it makes so much sense to us. You know, it doesn't seem so strange. It doesn't require buying into the essence of it, buying into a lot of strange concepts and ideas. It seems like it works fairly well for us. And, um, you know, the early strata, it seems to be very little ritual or no ritual at all. In fact, there seems to be a, the Buddha was distinguishing himself from the Brahmins who were doing a lot of ritual. And, uh, you know, we don't do those things. And we focus on direct experience. In fact, becoming a stream mentor, one of the consequences of it is no longer uh, uh, adherence, no longer clinging to rites and rituals, they say, which might be a reference to that kind of focus. And so this kind of, uh, my argument, and I would suggest that uh, the Buddha himself was kind of in that range of religious and secularized Buddhism. He was more on the secular side. So when we come to the American Vipassana movement that we're all part of, and we, if we also see ourselves in more of the secularized part of the range, and again, different people in the movement fit different places along that range, but as a whole, we're more on that side. It's not something that's brand new. It's not something that we're kind of, uh, you know, doing that's never been done before. We're participating in a, in a long tradition of interpreting, reinterpreting Buddhism, understanding it, shaping it, so it fits for our culture and our times. And taking the conditions that we live in 
picking up those parts of Buddhism that really support us in our lives to move towards what we think is important, liberation perhaps, hopefully. And, uh, and uh, the fact that we have not included a lot of the religious forms of Buddhism, um, it doesn't mean that we've appropriated Buddhism by Western culture. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have <coughs> uh, kind of been disrespectful of uh, you know, what Buddhism really is, like real Buddhism is that, and we're like this perversion of it. Um, maybe there is no re- one real Buddhism. Maybe there's many kinds of Buddhisms. The Buddhist religions. Apples, oranges, pineapples, bananas. And um, I'd like us to be strawberries. <laughs> and uh, there's a, we're a wide range. And, uh, and that's part of the inevitable movement of Buddhism down through the ages. That every generation, every culture, every subculture, every, you know, there's a constant shifting and flowing and changing what's going on to it. And, we, and one of those shifts is a shift and range and from secularized to religious. It seems that the secularized movements where it occurs is more fragile than the more religious. So it doesn't last as long. The religious has really predominated. So it does have some, some you know, and it's also been very important for the continuity of Buddhism and kind of kept it intact and kept so much of the tradition going so the more secularized people can be around for the secularized people to kind of do what they do. And maybe the whole movement of religious and secular live in a kind of uh, wonderful and important interplay. They support each other, they work together, and we don't have to hold them against each other, opposed to each other. But, you know, there is this fluidity, this flowing and movement, and, and what the American Vipassana movement is doing is part of that dance, or part of that conversation, part of that kind of the fluidity and the movement of all the parts of Buddhism to keep it alive, keep it fluid, keep it kind of engaged and, and uh, going so it doesn't ostracize in some way. And so um, that's the genealogy of... Sec- of <laughs> Maybe you'll have a better title even what I'm about to say, but I don't like the title Secular Buddhism because it becomes a one thing. Uh, so if we're going to use the word secular, I prefer to call it the genealogy of secularized Buddhism, or secular, yeah, secularized. So it's more like a process of secularization, moving in that direction, rather than coming to a definitive secular Buddhism. So it's in that, in that kind of fluid kind of spectrum. <laughs> <laughs>